Blog Talk Radio. It's time to get ready for a journey into the love of art and the art of love. Welcome to Slightly Askew with Nancy at Noon, the show that takes an honest look into the heart of all things that shape the fabric of your entire life. And now, here's Nancy. Hello, I'm Nancy, and this show is my gift to you, my audience. Seekers of truth, happiness, a better life, and a better way of relating to others. My intention is to answer your questions to the best of my ability in a way that empowers you to make appropriate changes in your perspective and in your life. When you change your perspective, your outside circumstances will also change because of the shift that took place inside of you. Does that make sense? I am here to open you up to a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at life so you can be the best you can be in all possible ways, whatever that means for you. It might mean better health, better relationships with your partner or your family, your boss and coworkers, a higher level of fulfillment in your daily living experience, or just more knowledge to make informed decisions. Since this is my introductory show, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I'm doing an Ask Nancy radio show. Well, first of all, I love doing radio, and I love writing emails that help people gain knowledge so they can see a light at the end of the difficult challenges they are currently going through, and many of us are going through a lot of difficult challenges. I had a really true sense of my passion for writing emails back in 2011 when I joined a program called Feast for the Soul. The purpose of the program was to help prisoners by writing to them and providing them with guidance for their yoga and their meditation practices and any spiritual questions or concerns they were having. We worked with prisoners who wanted the help. Many of the prisoners thought of it like a pen pal dating service and they were up for any type of communication from women from the outside world, but there were a few inmates who took it seriously. I was assigned to help Hector. He was an inmate in a Texas prison who really wanted change in his life. He was hungry for the knowledge I sent him, which made the interaction between us very fulfilling for me as well as for him. Someone actually wanted to hear what I had to say. I don't know if you can even imagine how satisfying and fulfilling that was for me. I've spent years studying with great masters, dedicating myself to truth and enlightenment. My daughters didn't want to hear it. My husband, now ex-husband, called it voodoo. He was afraid of what he might find if he started questioning his own feelings and beliefs. Hector, on the other hand, was eager to learn more, to understand life, and to find a way to make a difference in other people's lives. Through our correspondence, he remembered a part of himself, a part that is in all of us, the part that wants to be of service to humanity in some way. When we started writing, Hector was in solitary confinement. Uh, Since that time, he went through a lot of challenges, personal hardships, and, you know, a tremendous amount of growth. He went through different programs inside the prison and was transferred to several different prisons throughout Texas. This summer, in 2015, he was released. Yay! And he challenged me to be the best I could be, to be clear in my guidance and explanations, You know, teaching someone something in writing is much different than speaking it on the phone or presenting it in a classroom setting. 
I couldn't look into his eyes to see if he understood or search his facial expressions for signs that I'd gone way overboard into the realms of mystics and mysteries that could seem unbelievable and, at times, incomprehensible. When all he wanted to know was the reasons behind and the solutions to some of the common, everyday problems all of us go through at some point in our lives. I realized that the information I was writing in my letters to Hector could benefit so many more people than just this one individual. So at a time when I was re-evaluating my professional direction, I asked myself, what do I really want to do that will bring me great joy and be of service to others? Hector immediately popped into my mind, and this is what came out of it, a radio program that answers your most pressing questions. And if I can't answer them, I will bring on an expert guest who can. Okay, let's get started with the first question. Dear Nancy, I'm pregnant and I have to tell my dad and I'm super scared and I don't know how to do it. I'm 23 years old and I've been living with my boyfriend for about four years. We are responsible adults. He works and I work part-time while I'm in university getting my degree. My dad is going to get really mad at me and be disappointed in me. He's going to think I'm going to quit school. Sometimes he gets it in his head about something and won't listen. Even if I say I'm staying in school, he won't believe me. I actually have nightmares about telling him. I'm terrified. What do I say? I'm afraid my mom might not talk to me because I don't think she likes my boyfriend and I'm young and she is worried about me getting trapped in a relationship. She always used to say, be a lesbian or marry rich, and I'm neither. Signed, Scared Mama to Be. Well, Scared Mama to Be, thank you so much for having the courage to share your fears with me. It takes guts to voice what is actually going on inside you. And congratulations, this is a very exciting time in your life. Nothing will ever be the same again. Babies and motherhood have a way of of changing your choices and the way you see life. No matter what age we are, we think we are adults and all grown up. Then a baby comes along and that's when the true meaning of being an adult kicks in. It's not about us anymore. It's about raising that child to the best of your ability. That often means questioning your behaviors, your belief patterns, and things you may never have thought about questioning before, like yes or no to vaccinations, public school, private school, or home school, What disciplinary measures are you going to take, if any at all? Things like that. But let's get through step one first, telling your parents. There are a lot of issues hidden beneath the surface of this question that I would love to dive into. I'm going to start with the one that's right there on the surface. How do you tell your parents you're pregnant? You don't. The word pregnant conjures up so many different emotions in people that I would totally stay away from it. It's like the word God. It means different things to different people, good and bad, but always based on personal experience of some sort. Not yours, theirs. And yours. For a father, the word pregnant often means his daughter had sex and it went wrong. She got pregnant. And what are we going to do now? It's a dad's worst nightmare for his teenage daughter. I know you aren't a teenager, you live with your boyfriend, you pay your own bills, buy your own groceries, make your own decisions, and left high school a long time ago, but you will always be your daddy's little girl, and as a father, he sees it as his job to protect you. And to some dads, this can somehow mean he failed, especially dads who are stuck in the past or in rigid beliefs, as you have mentioned. On some level, all dads know their daughters have sex or are going to have sex at some point in their lives. 
but they don't want to know about it on a conscious level. Very few fathers want to admit that their daughters are sexually active because for some reason they can't accept it. And if you can't accept something, it's very difficult to acknowledge it. So, chances are when you say the word pregnant, the only thing your dad is going to hear is, Hey dad, I just had sex with my boyfriend and I got knocked up. I'm not saying this would be the response from all dads, but your fear in sharing your joyous news with your dad is very real and has to have a basis from his previous behavior somewhere. If we change the whole message and come at it from a totally new approach, there's a good chance you will elicit a more favorable response. Just for a moment, forget about your dad and how you think he will react. What is it you want to express to him? What do you want to share with him? Are you excited about starting a family and being a mom? Are you eager about bringing new life into the world and sharing the journey with your dad? It sounds like you want him to be part of your new family life because it's very obvious you want him to support your choices and accept you and this new child. So let's start there. I'm going to give your boyfriend a name to make this easier. He's now called Dustin. How about opening with something like, Dad, I've got some super exciting, great news to share with you. This is so important that I wanted to tell you in person. Dustin and I have decided to start a family. I'm so grateful to have you as my dad, and now my baby is super lucky to have you as his granddaddy. Dustin and I are so happy, and we want you to share in the happiness and be part of our journey. Do you see how that's a totally different message? It's coming from your joy and excitement, not your terror and nightmares. It's coming from a place of love, inclusion, and family. It has to elicit a different response. Keep in mind that he will still have some sort of reaction. Just be calm and stay in a place of love. The next part of your concern is that your dad may not feel this is the best time in your life to start a family because you are still in university. It's certainly a heavy load, but you sound confident that you can do it. So if your dad is still in shock and doesn't bring it up, Take the initiative to bring it up yourself so it doesn't cause you more stress by hanging over your head for a later date. Reassure him that you've thought about it and have a plan set up and it's not going to be a problem at all. Then give him a few reasons why he can be at ease about it. Remember, this isn't about you, it's about him. Yes, he cares for you and your situation, but he is thinking about himself right now and his hopes and dreams and visions for your life. It's all about him. So figure out what drives him and what his fears are and reassure him in a way that only you, his daughter, can. Next, you don't know how to tell your mom because you don't know if she likes your boyfriend. And in the past, she suggested becoming a lesbian or marrying rich. Hmm, sounds like your mom got trapped in a relationship that didn't serve her and she loves you so much she doesn't want the same thing to happen to you. Not making excuses for her, just saying. This may seem like it's coming out of left field, but the fears we see in others are usually a direct reflection of the fears we harbor inside ourselves. I want to ask you this, scared mama. Is there any doubt in your mind whatsoever that Dustin is the right guy for you? And while we're here, do you have any doubts about being able to stay in university while you're raising a child? If so, now might be a good time to address these insecurities. We can never be 100% sure how long our relationships are going to last or what the future holds. The soul of the soon-to-be baby is the one who chooses his or her parents. 
Its desire is so powerful that it draws a man and woman together. Sometimes it draws together a couple who never should have been together in a million years. Maybe this is what happened to your parents. Other times it draws together people who are a good match. Whether you believe that to be true or not doesn't matter. What does matter is that you have made a choice to have this baby with Dustin. And that counts. I suggest you break the news to your mom in the same way you're going to tell your dad. Start it positive with confidence and come from your heart. You might be surprised how they respond. Then just be straight and ask your mom if she likes Dustin. Let her know that you would love her support of you and Dustin as a couple, not just you as her daughter. If you dig a little deeper into the energy of the statements you made, you might notice an underlying theme which is very clearly reflected in this sentence. My dad is going to get really mad at me and be disappointed in me. Why does it matter what anybody thinks? Sure, it's way nicer when people support us and when they appreciate us for who we are. It's super great when people actually agree with us, but none of that really matters. And most of the time, it never happens. Why do you so desperately want people to accept and approve of you to the point where you have nightmares telling the important people in your life about a miraculous and wonderful event? Look in the mirror and see the beauty and strength that is you. It takes a lot of courage to bring a new life into this world, especially when you are juggling a full-time university course, a part-time job, and a relationship. Yeah, you're still in a relationship. That takes courage, woman. You know, doubts are surely going to come and go. But whose are they? Yours or your parents? Is it your dad who is afraid it will be too much for you to handle and you will have to drop out of school? Or is it your own fear? Is it your mom who wants you to marry rich? Or are you afraid you can't afford to raise a child on your current income? Is it your dad who will be disappointed in you and your mom who won't talk to you again? Or do you feel somehow like you failed yourself and lost connection with who you truly are? You were strong and decisive enough to make these decisions. So call on that power again and stand confidently behind the decisions you've made. When you are your number one best supporter, it won't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what we do in life. There is always going to be opposition. Motherhood brings out all sorts of crazy in other people. Suddenly everyone else becomes the authority on how to raise your child. Don't let them be. Become the authority yourself. Listen politely if you have the time and inclination. Then do what you feel is right. Being a mom can make you a stronger person if you let it. I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> when I was pregnant with my second child, my thyroid started acting up. I remember sitting on the sofa in the middle of the summer and I was cold. My sweater was right beside me, but I was too weak to put it on. That's how much my thyroid was out of whack. I was a healthy person. I swam and walked regularly, ate properly, and had very little stress in my life. Times were different back then. I had to go see an endocrinologist, a specialist who works with the glands. After driving two hours to London to see him and waiting literally all day, yes, all day in the waiting room, the receptionist told us to go home, that the doctor was running behind in his appointments and had left for the day. The next week, when I finally did see him, he told me I needed to go on thyroid medication, that the drug would shut down my thyroid gland and I would be on medication for the rest of my life, that I would have to continue to increase my dosage regularly. He said, matter-of-factly, it's just what happens to women your age. 
I was shocked by his flippant attitude and the realization that if this was a man's disease, there would have been a cure for it a long time ago. But since I was just a woman, it was no big deal to shut down my thyroid and make me dependent on the pharmaceutical corporations. Yeah, right. I looked him straight in the eyes and I said, no fucking way. Then walked out of his office and never went back. I wasn't stupid. I knew I needed to boost my thyroid for the health of my unborn baby, but there was no way I was going to let a flippant doctor trade my thyroid to increase profits for drug companies. So I took the drugs until the baby was born. Then with the help of a naturopath, I weaned myself off, and I've been fine ever since. Had I known about naturopaths and alternative remedies before, I probably never would have taken the drug at all. I would have found something more natural with no side effects. But, like I said... It just made me stronger and wiser. I hope this eases your fears, scared mama. I would love to know how it goes, so please write back and tell me. For those of you listening, whatever stage of life you are in, the message I'm sending out is that the need for approval will wear you out. It's a pursuit that never ends and is never satisfied because there will always be one person who does not approve of the choices you make, the clothes you wear, the beliefs you hold, or the way you live your life. And that's okay. What they think is none of your business, so don't make it your problem. Every one of us is a unique human being, and we are here to live and express the authenticity of our uniqueness. Find a way to let your light shine to the surface, and people will naturally be drawn to you because of who you are. All right, we are going to take a short little station break and be right back. Today's ditty is about the laughing epidemic of 1962. In Tanganyika, back in 1962, an epidemic of laughter broke out. It started in a small boarding school where a group of students started laughing, maybe at a joke or something, nobody really knows. Then the whole school started laughing. Then the whole village caught it and it spread to more villages and towns. Thousands of people were laughing. They say the laughing epidemic lasted from six months to a year and a half. Sounds like a lot of fun, huh? Well, my first thought was that some foreign military was experimenting with these people, messing with their minds by infusing the air with some nasty chemicals, or dropping it in their drinking water. Because as much as laughter is fun for a few minutes, it's not really, it's not natural to laugh for this extensive amount of time. It wasn't just laughter either. People were also crying, they were fainting, they were experiencing different sorts of pain in their body and having respiratory problems. So obviously it wasn't about being joyful. The girls who started the laughing epidemic were tested, as was everyone else in the school, but no one showed signs of infections or physical ailments. The food and the water in the school were tested extensively and didn't show any signs of pathogens or toxins. So that basically rules out my theory of nefarious chemical experimentation. So what was going on? It was called mass hysteria. Today it's called mass psychogenetic illness, MPI. These villagers were experiencing the symptoms of extreme anxiety. It usually occurs in a group of people who feel they don't have any power. It's a way for them to express that something is wrong. There were lots of changes taking place in the country at that time, and laughter was one outlet for the intense stress these girls and much of the country's population were feeling, but unable to express in healthier ways. As you might guess, it happens to women more than men. Apparently it happens often, even today. 
It happens in schools and in the workplace. And the way they manage it is by spraying the area with something soothing. There are natural scents that, when inhaled, have the effect of calming the nervous system. I, in fact, keep a diffuser in my house and use a variety of different essential oils to uplift, clear, calm, or stimulate, depending on what I need to balance within my environment or within myself. Lavender is great for calming. I'm usually pretty calm and need something that actually stimulates me. So I often use a blend of citrus oils to help uplift my spirits on these dull, cold, gray Canadian winter days. I put a few drops of essential oil in my diffuser with some water and let that permeate the air. Hmm, and it smells so nice too. So there you have it, the great laughing epidemic of 1952. blog posts, recipes, self-help books, and more. Visit us online at nancyatnoon.com. You'll be glad you did. We are back, and on to the next question. Dear Nancy, I'm an artist, and I want to start selling my work. How do people price their artwork, especially commissions? I've had a few people say, price by the hour plus materials, but there's no way they're including marketing time, which should be huge. Signed, S.A. That is a great question and always a tough one to answer because there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer. Since not all art is equal, it's perfectly acceptable to price your work differently according to different types of work you want to sell. For instance, graphic designers generally charge by the hour. They set an hourly rate and guesstimate how many hours it will take them to complete a project or how many days it will take. Using this method, you would be able to charge a percentage up front as an initial deposit from the client Depending on the duration of the job and the cost involved, you can then schedule subsequent installment dates for second and third payments and the remainder upon completion. Another option is to charge a flat rate based on the project. If you're designing logos, you may already know how roughly how long it takes to create a basic logo. So again, even though this is a flat rate, it's also calculated on an hourly rate, but it's a solid price for the client. They aren't going to wonder if you're charging them for sipping cappuccino while texting your friends. If revisions are required, you can either include them in the price or let the client know there will be extra charges for additional work not listed in the original quote. And make sure to tell them how much and how you will be billing them. Those are two standards for commercial artists. Fine art, on the other hand, is a whole different ballgame. It's extremely subjective. What makes a 21 by 30 inch painting worth 782 million and another one of similar size only worth a couple hundred bucks? According to some experts, value is based on originality, the artist's reputation, the amount of time you put into it. Uniqueness is another factor that also adds value. What are you doing that is different from others? Did you create a new brush stroke or way of combining materials that hasn't been done before? Why do you think original artwork costs more than a huge print from Walmart? Because there is nothing unique in the so-called art that Walmart sells. Here's a true story. I've rented rooms to two contract workers this summer who came from totally different backgrounds. They lived in different cities and are, they're of different ages. They have very different likes and dislikes. Um, actually, they, they came from different countries. Their original background is from, one is from, um, Poland, the other one is from Germany. One of the men, Jack, just moved into a townhouse in the area, so I took him to a local art show 
where I had some of my work displayed. I thought it would be a, a good opportunity to fill up some of his very tall walls. The other man, Frank, has no interest in art at all. Well, one day the three of us were talking, and the subject of art came up. I probably instigated that conversation. Jack described the huge mural print that he has hanging, and I use that word loosely, that he has hanging on his wall. Well, wouldn't you know it? Frank has the exact same print hanging in his living room. Personally, I'd be mortified, not because there are six billion of those prints hanging on people's living room walls across the country. No, it's because quality, uniqueness, originality, time, reputation, and mystery, oh yes, mystery, are all missing. I only have original artwork hanging on my walls, not because I'm rich and can afford great works of art. Nope. It's because the general public isn't mortified to spend 10 bucks on a dime store print and think it's the same or close to the same as the original work of art that I create. You get what you pay for. Everything has an inherent vibration to it, and you bring that vibration into your home, and it radiates into your life. So be sure you know exactly what you are hanging on your walls. I price my work by gut. I feel for what feels right, what I'm willing to let go of a piece of art for, basically how much it's worth to me. Selling low undermines you and me as artists. I think it all comes down to self-worth. Sure, part of it is what the market will bear, but there are so many markets all bearing different purchasing budgets and values. I seriously use my feeling senses. If it hurts, then it's too low. My work is still very underpriced according to what I know the value to be, but that's the mental component that I need to adjust inside myself. This probably isn't very practical pricing guidance for you, but it's totally ridiculous to price by time and materials unless you calculate like doctors and lawyers and factor into it the amount of time and money you spent in education, practice or internship, etc. You are in a manufacturing factory, so certainly don't go by minimum wage. In the second part of your question, you mentioned about including marketing time in your price. I don't know that it's about including marketing time per se. Marketing time is included in your business expenses, which I suppose could be reflected in your artwork, but it's a business expense, much like operating costs such as electricity, water, rent, etc. The value of your work has to do with your knowledge, experience, time, intuition, ability to creatively express yourself, and the amount of time and money you have invested in your ability to provide a legitimate service and product for your clients. And, of course, quality, uniqueness, mystery, and all that. Funny thing, my daughter's been studying political economics in university, and she said, Mom, we need to do a cost analysis on your products to get the proper prices so you actually make money as a business. So one afternoon, we sat down, and she started scribbling equations with no numbers and only letters across pages and pages of paper. Somehow or other, she solved the equation and came up with a dollar figure for one of my products. And I said, Huh! That's exactly what I'm charging now. And I went by what felt right in my gut. That's all the questions I have time for in this episode, but I will leave you with this to ponder. Vincent van Gogh sold only one painting in his lifetime. He created over 900 paintings that never sold until after his death. And that is only because his sister-in-law dedicated herself to getting him the recognition he needed. At least one of his paintings today is worth $66 million. I sure hope Van Gogh came back to enjoy his fame and maybe some of the fortune in another lifetime. As a fellow artist, I seriously and sincerely feel for him. Not only that, 
Van Gogh paintings are among the most frequently stolen paintings, and some are still missing. So just because your work doesn't sell or you don't get the price you feel you deserve, that does not mean your work is any less valuable or desirable. Hmm, I wonder if that was a message to self. That's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for joining us again on Slightly Askew with Nancy at Noon. We've enjoyed your company and hope it's been fun for you too. If you like what you're hearing, please share us with your friends and family because, well, they might like us too. You can find us online at nancyatnoon.com. We've got fascinating blog posts, recipes, self-help books, weight loss CDs, coaching programs, art, jewelry, and all kinds of other cool stuff. Go ahead and check us out. nancyatnoon.com. You'll be glad you did.